Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from also the New Testament, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we will be reading the verses 42 through 47. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read this morning. They, meaning the early church, the early members of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Many of us probably remember a, a television program that first originated in the 1950s called To Tell the Truth. Three contestants would introduce themselves all by the same name, Jerry Jones will say, and the host of the program would then state something unique about the real Jerry Jones that a four-member panel would then cross-examine to see if they could determine which of the three was the genuine article. And after they voted, the host would then ask, would the real Jerry Jones please stand up? Throughout the history of the church, the question has arisen from time to time, would the real church of Jesus Christ please stand up? This past Wednesday evening, we looked at the circumstances that prompted the Apostle John to write his first letter combating those who had separated themselves from the church, claiming doctrinal authority for themselves, all in an attempt to persuade others to join them in their church. In the third century, there were those who split away, claiming that there could be no repentance for any believer who had succumbed to persecution from Caesar and had recanted their faith. But the majority of the established church disagreed and welcomed them back, those that they deemed to be truly penitent. The schisms concerning the nature of Christ that resulted in the ecumenical councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon during the 4th and 5th centuries pitted factions against one another. And of course, the great schism of the 11th century resulted in a split in the church between the East and the West that has never been resolved, though many have tried. And then, during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the question, would the real church of Jesus Christ please stand up, 
came to the forefront once more. The church in Rome argued that they were the real church as they pointed to their large constituency and organizational structure that included what they believed was the pontifical uh, successor to the Apostle Peter. But the Reformers argued that the true church could not be defined by visible ecclesiastical structure alone, for the church also had an invisible quality to it that could not be discounted. And what emerged then was a definition of the church that was qualitative. That is, the Reformers embraced an answer to the question by declaring that the true church of Jesus Christ was marked by three distinctives. The true preaching of God's Word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. When they declared that the church was characterized by the true preaching of God's word, they were referring to the faith that was first presented by the apostles and not what proceeded from the Pope in Rome. And it is to this apostolic doctrine that Paul is referring when he writes to young Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. One of the hallmarks of any visible church should be the clear presentation of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Not simply on occasion, but as a steady diet for the sustaining of the body of Christ. If any church departs from any of the essential doctrines of the apostles, then it ceases to be a true church of Christ. So when Joseph Smith, no relation, declares that Jesus is not the pre-existent Son of God and he founds the Mormon church, which teaches this ancient heresy, it's not a true church. Or if a church denies the doctrine of the Trinity, as Unitarian churches do, they're not a part of the true church that Jesus Christ is building. Now, this does not mean that there cannot be theological differences or some levels of doctrinal purity, but it is to say that when there are departures from the essential tenets of the faith, that church has begun taking an apostatizing path. When Jesus addresses the seven churches in the opening chapters of Revelation, the admonishment to them all is to remain faithful. And the threat from the Lord is that if they do not, their lampstand will be removed. In other words, a departure from the presentation of the apostolic teaching could result in their being abandoned by the Lord of life. Jesus says to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up 
Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now this is to say that a visible church can ease its way into apostasy, but can also return to what it first received and held and proclaimed. Such a process of theological departure is frequently due to the presence of a pastor who has personally departed from the faith, then uses the pulpit to expound his or her heretical views that go unchallenged because the congregation may be biblically and theologically ignorant. Now this speaks to the vital importance of ruling elders who have been well trained in the faith, who are shepherding the flock of Christ in such a way that they are constantly guarding against any departures, both from without, but also from within, even if it is from the pulpit. So the first mark of the true church is the true proclamation of the Word of God. The second mark is the right administration of the sacraments, those being baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, why is this? The Westminster Confession of Faith says this concerning the sacraments. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. In other words, when the sacraments are rightly administered, they serve as a visual sign that points to a spiritual truth. The sacraments visually speak to us and to the world about the gospel of Christ. Baptism is a sign that speaks to our departure from the world and our reception into the kingdom of God through the death and resurrection of Christ. Baptism is a visual sign that our sins have been washed away as we are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised to new life in Christ. The Lord's table is a sign that we are partakers of Christ and his atoning work. As we partake of the one loaf and the one cup, the sacrament shows the communion we have with the Lord and with one another. The Lord's table is a sign of what is yet to come when all the saints will partake of the marriage feast of the Lamb when Christ's kingdom comes in its full consummation. But when a church welcomes to the table those who are not yet a part of Christ, it profanes the sign. That church is encouraging the unredeemed to eat and drink condemnation unto themselves because they have no share in Christ. But they may leave the table under the mistaken notion that they now do. Or when baptism is administered apart from an affirmation of faith by either the parent of an infant or the believer themselves, 
the church is profaning the visible sign that marks entry into the body of Christ. And it misleads the baptized person to think that this is all that's necessary to gain salvation. The Reformers recognized the spiritual character of the sacraments and that they served a most important role in the life of the church. And so significant was the Lord's table in the mind of John Calvin, for example, that he believed that we should come to the table every Lord's day. As we read from Acts, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. But as we know from the letter to the Corinthians, it is not hard for a church to make a mess of the sacrament, misunderstanding its significance and how we are to come to the table. I remember being surprised many years ago to discover that a church in our town within our former denomination never made any attempt to prevent unbelievers from coming to the table, for they considered that to be inhospitable. To them, it would have been impolite to warn off any non-believer from partaking of the Lord's Supper. But that is to ignore what Jesus himself did in John chapter 6 when he told that vast crowd of people that was following him that unless they ate of his flesh and drank of his blood, they would have no part in him. Now, he was speaking of his atoning death, although they did not have the spiritual insight to understand that. And they all went away grumbling over these quote-unquote hard sayings. But Jesus did not consider that to be impolite or inhospitable. It was the spiritual truth of the matter. And it was only by speaking the truth to them that they had any chance of coming to a point of repentance and rebirth. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear do understand these hard sayings. And for them, the invitation to come to the table is met with joy and gladness for they realize that by his torn body and shed blood, they have been made righteous. So the second mark of a true church of Christ is one where the sacraments are rightly administered. The third mark is when church discipline is practiced. Much of the discord that has taken place within the mainline denominations over the last 60 years or so has stemmed from the fact that they have refused to practice church discipline. Not only have heretical errors been allowed to go undisciplined and unchallenged, but so have behavioral sins that the Bible speaks very clearly about. And when such practices go uncorrected, when they are ignored and given free reign, it leads others to conclude that such behavior is acceptable and they may follow suit. But it also fails to care for the offender in a manner that is Christ-like. When the Apostle Peter denied knowing the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times, did Jesus cut him loose and forget about him? No. Nor did he treat 
Peter's betrayal as though it was some small matter. Jesus followed his own instructions when he went to Peter privately on the day of resurrection. And while we have no account of their encounter, we are given a record of Christ's approach to Peter when he and other disciples had breakfast beside the sea. And there Jesus provided Peter with the means of public reconciliation by which the earliest members of the New Testament church could witness what transpired between Christ and Peter, and Peter could be restored to his position among the apostles. Or when the Corinthian church was not disciplining the man who had married his father's wife, Paul would hear nothing of it. He gave them strict instructions on how they should mete out the discipline. And then in his next letter, he told them how this man was to be restored to their fellowship after demonstrating a genuine repentance. Now, the vast majority of discipline in the church is actually conducted from the pulpit. When the disciples of Christ are provided with doctrinal truth, to correct or mitigate any heretical errors they might hold, as well as scriptural truth designed to sanctify the believers. But church discipline also occurs among the members when we speak the truth in love to one another, realizing that none of us is perfect. Each of us have blind spots that need to be gently brought to our attention with the hope that it will bring about a godly awareness of behavior in us that is less than Christ-like. Please do understand me here. I am not talking about every little thing. But if we see a pattern of behavior that is spiritually damaging to a brother or sister, as well as to the body of Christ as a whole, we are called to go to that person privately and bring it to their attention, as Matthew 18 directs us to do. And if they repent, then we have gained a brother or a sister. If they refuse, then we are to care enough about them that we re-approach them with one or two others who share our concern, again, with the desire for restoration. And if that does not accomplish the desired goal, then we are to bring the matter before the whole church. And if that is unsuccessful, then we are to cut them loose from the fellowship until they come to a point of repentance. But we are to care about one another to the degree that we are willing to confront one another when we see a pattern of sin that is threatening to the believer. Now these three marks of the true church are designed to help believers find as well as to remain within a community of believers. There are times when we may find ourselves disagreeing with some decision that has been made within the body or someone has said something that has offended our sensibilities and we say to ourselves, that's it, I'm done. But I believe that R.C. Sproul is right when he says, today people move from one church to another without a second thought. When we leave a church over silly reasons like paint colors or an offending remark, we fail to see the sacred nature of the church itself. 
We should not leave when there's no just reason. We ought to honor our commitment to a church to the best of our ability as long as we possibly can unless we are not able to be nurtured and nourished as a Christian there. When the church is apostate, then a Christian must leave. You may think you should stay within the church, try to work for its change and recovery, but if the church is in fact apostate, then you're not allowed to be there. No matter what, we should always look carefully at the marks of the church. Is the gospel preached? Are the sacraments duly administered? Is there a biblical form of church government and discipline? And if those things are present, you ought not to leave. You ought to work to be an edifying part of that section of the body of Christ. Beloved, my hope and my prayer for this particular church is that these three marks are fully manifested here, but also that they will always be manifested here. For that to be true will require that you understand the significance of these distinctives and will not only hold to them yourselves, but that you will pass them on to each succeeding generation. That will require great discernment when calling officers under whose spiritual authority you place yourselves, individuals who share this understanding of the church and pledge to continue doing so. But if you do that, I have little doubt that the Lord will commend you one day for your stewardship of the faith in this place. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment this morning.